Welcome to Your Story Matters, the show where we share inspiring stories from all around the world. After you've listened to this one, why don't you tell us yours? Share your story at yourstorymatters.net. But first, here's your host, speaker and writer, Angela Schaefers. Today, I'm honored to have the opportunity to interview Linda Ombard. She is the author of Courageously Alive, A Walk Through Military Loss. She will be sharing her story today and hopefully will encourage and inspire others who not only have suffered loss but have gone through the challenges in dealing with grief and the things that come along with tragic events in our lives. Hi, Linda. Welcome to the show. Hello. It's good to have you here. Before we talk about your book and the recent events, I know you participated in the Boston Marathon, and we do want to talk about that. Can you give the listeners a little bit of background and history about you, how you grew up, how your life was prior to your tragic event? Well, I grew up in a small-town girl, pretty much. I grew up in Boise, Idaho. I'm a Boise State graduate and an Idaho State graduate. I ran in high school and college. I've been a runner all of my life, Um, well, 35 years, which is pretty much all of my life. (laughs) I got married to a military man, and I brought three young children into the marriage. I met Phil while I was the manager of Mountain Home Air Force Base Swimming Pool, and I had just gotten out of a marriage that wasn't a very good marriage, and I was not interested in dating another military person at all. Mm And this young guy kept coming in and asking me out, and I kept saying no, and it became a game with us. Hmm. And finally, on the, on the 20th time he asked me out, I said yes, and we eloped four months later. We went on to have two more children together. Um, we were married for 23 years, and I followed him all over the world. And what made Phil incredible um, and made us incredible together was Phil was not an American by birth. Phil joined our American service to get his citizenship at 18. He was from Venezuela, and English was not his first language. He came to the United States at 12, and he knew two words of English. And if you met him at 44, you would never have known he did not grow up in the United States. He wrote and spoke perfect English. And together, we made quite the team. I was a stay-at-home mom, and home was wherever he was. And I just followed him. To every assignment, my, my job was to be the positive spin master whenever he deployed, mm-hmm. to be to keep the home front going while he was gone and gone away. And half of our first, the first half of our marriage, he was gone half the time. Mm-hmm. And he worked really hard. He spent 16 years as an enlisted man and got his commission 10 years before he was killed. And what was remarkable about that was he had just finished his Ph.D. five days before he deployed. Um, he was probably the smartest man I ever knew, but he never saw that himself. Mm-hmm. And he never, he never lost sight of freedoms and opportunities given to him through his American citizenship. And that was the way we raised our five children. And he was dad to all of the children, not just the two we had together. He never referred to them as step anything. They were his kids. He was our only dad. And he taught them to appreciate and value the freedoms and opportunities were given by our citizenship and four out of five of my children serve in the military following mm-hmm. in their dad's footsteps. Mm. Let me ask you before you go on, what was it like 
being a military wife, having the kids to take care of, moving around all the time. I know that if someone is a military wife or spouse, they certainly know that routine and, and that sort of life. But for our listeners who may not be there or not yet, or looking at that as a possibility in their future, what were some of the things that were challenging for you? And on the other hand, what were some of the things that were positive for you as far as being a military spouse? Well, I'm going to start with the positives first. I grew up in Boise, Idaho, and everybody had freckled skin like I have. By being exposed to the military culture, my children grew up very global. Mm-hmm. They embraced a world versus just a city. They grew up knowing people that were different from them, being exposed to different music, to different cultures. Um, they grew up abroad for the most part, so they had a chance to experience different countries. And they... They knew how to fly. They were much more independent than I was. I didn't fly in an airplane until I was 21 for the first time. They are very independent, every one of my children, much more so than I am. I grew up afraid. Um, I grew up afraid of new things. Mm-hmm. But what, and what I will tell you is when I married Phil, I knew what I was getting myself into because I was married to a military man the first time. Mm-hmm. But it takes work. It, ta- it takes work. You're not living by your family. You don't have a mom or a sister or a long-term friend where you can call them up on the phone and say, hey, you know, can you watch uh, little Johnny while I go to the supermarket? It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. We moved so much that I didn't have anybody I trusted with my five children. Mm-hmm. And so we never once left five children with a babysitter. And mm-hmm. you think about that. We were married 26 years. We never had a weekend away without our kids. Wow. You go through the birth of children without a spouse. You go through appliances breaking, and that sounds like a small thing, but it's a big thing when you have kids at home, right. you're, you're living on a really strict budget, you don't have you, you don't have a spouse, you're dealing with sick kids, surgeries, um, you're dealing with decisions, all the household decisions, and, they, and early on when we were married, everything, it wasn't like with email, we had to handwrite letters back and forth to each other, mm-hmm. and those, that actually became sort of a positive, because I have foot lockers upon foot lockers full of love letters that my husband wrote to me. Mm, That's Um, awesome. And you do get really good at the reunions, and you get really good at... I'm stronger than I thought I was Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways. You get really good at being both mom and dad. And one of the hardest things for me was letting Phil back in when he came home because I was getting a little too good at being mom and dad. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a routine, and Mm -hmm. he would come home he would come home from a six-month deployment, and he would want to be dad. And the way he would get on their good graces, kids with good graces, is he would be Disneyland dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, and I had to be so structured because I had so many children, and I always felt like I was a bad parent because I was a rules parent, and Phil was a Disneyland parent. Mm-hmm. And it worked for us. We made such a good team as parents that we actually were trying to adopt two children when he was killed, mm-hmm. and. Because we knew that we did that one well together. Another positive of the military is, even though we don't have deep roots as far as friendships go, we had friends all over the world. Right. Because the military is like a family. We we meet people, we become friends pretty quickly. Then we leave a few years later, but we're still friends with them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we'll hook back up. And when the bottom of my life fell apart, those are the people that carried me because 
I didn't have those roots. I didn't have somebody to turn to. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where to go home because I didn't really have a home. I hadn't lived in Boise since 1983. Mm-hmm. And so for me, home was a person, and home was all the fun things that I did as, did to make sure that we had positive memories that fostered the resilience in my children and in myself even, mm-hmm. so that when Phil was gone, we had something to fall back on. We had pictures. We had memories. We had laughter. Um, and we had faith, and we shared our faith together, um, mm-hmm. which helped us connected during those times apart. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And and I love that you're sharing all that, because I know that there's a lot of people, young military families, spouses, who are struggling and trying to figure out how do we make this work. Is is there hope that it can work? And, and I love stories like yours, because it can work, and it does work, but sometimes it takes time to figure out what role each of you are going to play and how it's going to work best for your family. Do you think that some of your upbringing and some of who you are as a person helped equip you for this role of being a military spouse? Sure it did. Um, I grew up going to Catholic schools growing up. I grew up, you know, knowing that faith was important in relationships, knowing that um, relationships matter mm-hmm. more so than the paycheck. I had my education. I had my degree. I gave up medical school to marry Phil, so it wasn't like I didn't have options. But for me, it was all about our, my family. I mm-hmm. wanted my family to be best friends with each other because I knew we were going to be moving all the time. And so for my choice was when my kids were young, stay at home and be mom. And by doing that, the choice was they only had each other to be best friends with, mm-hmm. and my kids are so close. It's really wonderful when your 20-year-old calls your 30-year-old and talks to him about his life and about the career choices he's making mm-hmm. and asking for advice. Right. That doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to the commitment to family. And for me, as a military spouse and as a military wife, both people have to have that commitment to family. Right. And that because that family is that one unit that goes with you everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. I may not know anybody in this little city, but I have my family, and my family is going to have my back no matter what. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that. That's awesome. Before we talk more about Phil's death and the things that surrounded that time of your life, can you share with the listeners some of the things that perhaps you wish you would have done differently looking back or that you wish you would have had perhaps more support in certain areas or different opportunities, if any? There are two. First one is Phil and I were so nuclear. We, we, we were each other's best friends. And whenever I had anything I wanted to talk about, it was always to Phil and vice versa. And when he would deploy, I would put my whole life on hold until he came back. And then we would re-engage, we'd go on. And we had some tough times. But even through the tough times, we were able to get back to what was important to us, which was the two of us. But I had socially isolated myself so much that I didn't invest in other friendships outside of Saul. Mm-hmm. And I wish that I had done I wish I had done that a little bit better in terms of when things get really tough and you have no and Phil died. I didn't have anybody to call. I, I I didn't have a grounding. I didn't have someone to call and cry with. Mm-hmm. I didn't have those deep connections where I felt like I could just totally let it out. The other thing I wish I had done differently is I wish that 
we had made time together as a couple in terms of going on vacations together because at the end of his life, I made it too easy for him. Our youngest had just left the house. We had the money to be able to go off and do vacations by ourselves. But we kept putting it off. And it wasn't until he got to Afghanistan where he said, Linda, I want that trip with just you. And we had, we had purchased a trip, a cruise out of Venice. And we were going to meet at the halfway point and go on this cruise together, and we never made it to the halfway point. And if I had one thing in the latter part of our marriage, it would be that, that I wish that I would have been a little pushier about wanting that time with just my husband because we didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I understand that. I'm sorry to hear that because I know I've heard other people share similar stories, and it is hard to deal with that loss of time and that loss of opportunity is there something you can share with others based on that that has helped you to get through that part of your grief? Because that's huge when there's something that, if only, is in your mind. Well, all right, there's one more, if only, and I'm going I'm to, I'll, I'll tell your listeners about the if only. When Phil would deploy, he would withdraw because it was his way of getting through things based on the way he grew up. Because he did not grow up in the kind of home that most of us have grown up in. And so he would withdraw, and he would shut down. And it, it was really hard for me because we were such close friends, and he was my only friend. And this time, when he went to PY, he was actually making an effort. He was trying. Mm-hmm. He was calling me or emailing me every single day, which he had never done before in the past. And he, he made a huge attempt. I mean, mm-hmm. cards, did all of these nice things. The last time I talked to him was Easter Sunday. I had just made a friend, and I was at her house with her sister for Easter dinner. And he says, oh, I'll call you back tomorrow. Well, Monday came. He didn't call. And I thought, okay, you know, that's kind of weird, but all right. I didn't get an email, and I thought, that's weird. Tuesday came, same thing. And then I was starting to get a little upset. Okay, here we go again. Wednesday came, and I'm really upset right now. And I decided to wait it out. I decided to wait him out, and I, I don't get cranky or irritable with people in my life because I, I just don't, I don't like what makes me feel. But on this situation, I decided to wait him out. He was killed Thursday um, in Afghanistan time um, on the 27th. Mm-hmm. And what I learned from that was I'm never making that mistake again. I'm not going to play a game because there's no taking it back. You can't take it back and you don't know when somebody's last hour, last minute, or last day is going to be. And so from the lessons I have learned is the moments matter, the people matter. Mm-hmm. And there's no job, no paycheck, nothing matters as much as people in my life. And yes, sometimes it's hard to define those lines mm-hmm. because we all have we all have to work. But I make time for those people that matter. I, I don't just voice the words, I show up mm-hmm. and I'm present, fully present in people's lives. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And thank you for sharing that because... So many people need to be reminded. I know we often think about things like that or we say life is short, live your best life, things like that. Do it today, but then we don't follow through. So I appreciate your honesty and your humility in in sharing that part of your story because I think it's powerful. And I do believe that when people need to hear a certain message, they'll hear it at the right time. So there will probably be a lot of people that hear those words from you. Can you share then a little bit about some of the emotions and things surrounding your husband's death and how you dealt with that and what 
really came out of that for you, at least so far, in facing his death and your life change? Well, first, I never thought that it was going to be felt. My daughter was deployed until three weeks before her dad died to Afghanistan. So was an officer, and we always told all of our children, go in the Air Force, it's a country club branch of the military. You don't get shot. You don't deploy for as long. It's a safe branch. If you're an officer, you know, you've got a cushy lifestyle. Well, that's not true. <laughs> um, Phil volunteered to deploy to Afghanistan for a year um, because he said, how can I mentor cadets? He was a teacher at the Air Force Academy. Mm-hmm. How can I mentor cadets if I don't do this too? And so he, he went, and it was an inconvenience, but we never thought that he was going to die. He was the guy that always did everything to be safe. He wouldn't get in a vehicle and drive across the base because he had to go through checkpoints. So he'd walk so he could stay, you know, on the American turf and whatnot. He was over there as an advisor, and he trusted his assassin. He trusted his assassin, liked his assassin, wrote home about the guy that killed him. This guy was a high-ranking Afghani military an Afghan military man, um, somebody that Phil should have been able to trust. And Phil was in the room with eight other people that day. They were all in those roles. They were helping advise their Afghan counterparts. And so, number one, it destroyed all of my trust. If he could be so wrong about somebody, then mm-hmm. how can I trust? Mm-hmm. But number two... I thought I was losing my job the day that they came to tell me that Phil had been killed mm-hmm. I, um, because my school district had essentially declared bankruptcy and I had volunteered to be the one to be let go because I knew that my husband was going to come home. We were going to move again. And so when they came to get me that day and I saw media trucks, I thought it was because I was losing my job and I thought I was going to have to give an interview about that. Mm-hmm. But the media had figured out who it was that had been killed. He was, Phil was the first soldier from the Air Force Academy to be killed in action since the Vietnam War. Hmm. And so I'm walking up behind my principal thinking that's what it was. We get to the office. All the naughty kids are running out. The phones are ringing. My principal's not talking to me, and I'm thinking he's having a hard time with this. Mm-hmm. Everybody's looking at me. I get um, I walk into the office, I walk around the corner, my principal ducks into the nurse's office, I think, to use the restroom. I see all the military uniforms. And in a million years, I can never repeat what I repeat the behaviors of what I did. I fell to my knees, and I started peeing. Mm. And I remember when I fell to my knees, I had a choice. I, I remember it crossing my mind, I had a choice to make. How can I claim to have faith if in my darkest hour I turned my back on it? And I chose to fall into my face, and it really did make all the difference in the world. Mm. It was terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a place to call home. I was told I had one year to make up my mind um, about where I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. How do I know where I want to live? Mm-hmm. I don't know where I want to live. My kids live all over the world. Mm-hmm. These are in the military. Boise is no longer home. I don't have any connections anywhere. All I know is that the place I loved the very most and wish I still lived there is Colorado Springs, and I can't, I couldn't live there during that time because it was, my grief was so public. And everybody else was feeling bad too, and I couldn't be strong for everybody and myself. Mm-hmm. Phil had coached with me, Phil had been scout leaders with me, Phil had substitute taught when he was getting his PhD, so all these schools, he was so involved in everything that. 
there was nowhere I could go to get away from everybody. Number one, I've, I've never been the center of gossip. I became the center of gossip about people making assumptions about how long it would take me to start dating and to remarry. And I had people crying on me at 6 in the morning while the swimming pool trying to hug on me. And I could, I'm a really private griever. And the way I grieve is I grieve by running. I mm-hmm. go I go run. I turn off all the electronic devices, and I process through things as I run and I write. And that's mm-hmm. how the book came about is I run and I wrote. Mm-hmm. I also ran away to Germany for a year and a half because it bought me some time as far as figuring out where I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. And I am living in Massachusetts right now, but I do not consider myself an East Coast girl. I consider myself more of a West Coast girl. I don't know if I'll, if I'll ever be able to live in Colorado Springs again, but that is where I consider home more more so than any other place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's powerful. And, and I'd love for you to share just a few things that are in the book and what you think would help the readers mostly by reading the book and getting a copy of Courageously Alive? Well, I talked about some things I should have thought about before Phil died in terms of setting up my life. For instance, bank accounts. Um, About four years ago, we decided to do everything online. We had been married so long that we we set up a joint account online, one access point, one password, Phil was the person who set those up, and that's all well and good until he was killed in action. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, powers of attorney then become null and void, and I couldn't access our bank account. It was easily fixed, but I was in Dover, Delaware, and I had to get back to Colorado Springs to fix it. So that's one, one small, small thing as I start talking about the reality of things that you, you should think about. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I talked about being a young widow. But it is really hard to be a young widow. And there are a lot of women younger than me dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm way too young to be a widow. I, I thought that I would be single forever um, if, if something happened. So I thought I'd die first. Mm. And our last, our last conversation that we had together face-to-face was the what-if conversation. And the best gift he gave me was, if you died first, would you want me to be happy again? Well, of course, the answer was yes. And he mm-hmm. said, that's what I want for you. Mm-hmm. And so just working through the issues of, I don't even know how to do this. I haven't been single in so many years. I don't know how to be single. I don't know how to play the game. Still don't, but you know, I, I dealt with some of that in that book. I also dealt with a lot of the issues about a lot of our long-term friends, like people that we thought were friends, that had been in our lives for a long time, didn't know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And so they just, they left our lives. Mm-hmm. I had a Muslim friend. I never looked at her that way. I never once thought of her that way. And because we were just friends. And she never got in touch with me um, after Phil died because I found out later it was because she was afraid that I would blame her for Phil's death because she was Muslim. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how could you even think that? You were my friend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My own my own children didn't know what how to deal with it. My mom didn't know how to deal with it. Right. So all the people mm-hmm. that you think would be your support system are not there. And yet, something really remarkable happened. All those military brothers and sisters, people that come home looking normal but are no longer normal because they've seen too much, people that we were deployed with or, or stationed with long, long time ago, step up to the plate. And so many of those military men and women have carried me, and they get it. Right. Because we all, we all believe that they're but the grace of God could go I. 
you just never think it's going to happen to somebody you know. Mm-hmm. And it is humbling. I have been given a lot of opportunities based on the way that Phil died and the fact that I, I can talk about it. But it's not about all of that for me. It is about this. Every single one of those names that flashed across the TV screen was somebody that wanted to come home, that had somebody waiting for them, somebody loving them, and every one of those names had dreams, they had hopes, they wanted to come home, and they're missed. They're forever missed. It's not just about Phil. It's about all of the soldiers that wanted to come home. And mm-hmm. that's why I keep talking, even though there are people that could do this better than I. Mm. Mm. I won't agree that there's someone that could do it better than you because I think that everyone's story and the way they share is unique to them and powerful and meaningful. And I really, really appreciate that you're sharing your story with our listeners today. Can you talk a little bit about the incident at the Boston Marathon? You did mention your runner, and I believe you were there running the marathon on Phil's behalf. I had been given a number based on the fact that Phil was killed by a terrorist. I qualified numerous times as a young, younger runner, and I developed some medical issues that robbed every bit of talent I ever had. I'm still fairly quick for my age, but I'm not Boston fast. And somebody had heard my story, and they gave me their number. Mm. So um, I essentially was invited to run the Boston Marathon. And I thought it was a perfect way to honor Phil because I was at the two-year mark. It was my metaphor for life. You know, I, you don't quite conquer Heartbreak Hill. You hurt like heck, but you're able to one step at a time, one minute at a time, one mile at a time, get over Heartbreak Hill. Mm. And I was having... I was feeling really good about that that day. And I, April is a terrible month for me because that's the month of Phil's birthday and the month that he was killed. And so, you know, it was April 15th. I was feeling good about things, thinking, you know, I'm finally starting to get my feet back on the ground a little bit. And I passed the 26-mile marker. All I, could, I was on Boylston. The finish line was within my sights. And I was feeling good. And a terrorist came and tried to take that, too. And I cannot let violence take anything else out of my life. I can't. Mm. We have to stand up to the bullies, and we have to stand strong together because one of the things that terrorists try to do is they seek to name our spirit of the people that are left behind. That's right. And I can't, I can't do it. I, I'm going to stand strong, and I'm going to stand firm. I, you know, I'm a simple girl who loves polka dots in her country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. What was that like for you? I'm sure terrifying, but can you describe a little bit of the incident, running along, and then all of a sudden, I'm assuming being filled with terror and shock for what was happening? Well, at first we heard this big boom, and we saw this gray cloud, and the principal running next to me said, do you think they're having cannons at the end? And I, I said, I, I don't think so. That just doesn't make sense. They never do, they've never have before. We're running on, and it seemed like a while later, but it wasn't that long later at all. All of a sudden, we start hearing screams and people running back towards us. And we looked at each other, and we weren't quite processing what was going on. And then we heard the second boom. And at that point, we didn't even get a chance to be stopped because we were so close to to the finish line. We started running the opposite direction. Mm. We didn't know where it was safe. We didn't know where to go. I went to a Dunkin' Donuts or coffee place and just sat there and wept. I didn't know what to do. When I did get my phone, I didn't have reception. My kids couldn't get a hold of me, so it put fear back into my kids' life. And 
you know, and then they got angry. I got really angry. It was like, you know what, we need to stand up to these bullies. And, you know, not today, not tomorrow, not next year. We cannot let them take it. Um, we have to stand and live our life and, and, and basically say we're not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a, I know that that's not an easy answer. I know that's not an easy thing to stop. But I think that as Americans, we need to. I'm, I'm proud to be one. Mm-hmm. I agree. I understand what you're saying. Is there something that you can share with the listeners? Because you've obviously been through a lot in these last couple of years that helps you to sleep at night, that helps you to remember that despite these incidents that are horrific, there's still hope. There's still an opportunity for us to do our best and be our best and to stand up, as you said, to the bullying, to the harassment, to the terrorism. What would you share with the listeners about finding that peace? Two things. things. Um, I have found meaning by speaking up. Um, I have found passion and purpose by speaking of military loss. And it helps me to honor my soul and the marriage that we had. Mm -hmm. But the second thing is my faith. Because out of the ashes of my life, I have seen God's blessings rain down on me. It's easy to sit there and live snibbled in the corner, crying my eyes out, and looking at everything I've lost. Mm. But there have been some really great things that have come out of the ashes. And it's not the life I thought I would be having. It's not the life I ever wanted. Mm-hmm. But it was like the rest, prior to this, it was like a dress rehearsal for the woman I'm supposed to be. Mm. And I never thought I had the strength or the courage to do what I'm doing, which is speaking and writing and basically trying to affect change um, within the military, within the public, within our world, my own little world. I was a girl that was shy and quiet in the shadows, and I am not that girl anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I love that because I think that's the power in our stories is when we learn from our story, whether it's tragic or everyday stuff or anything in between the learning is what really helps us to walk into our own power and to see our purpose and to understand what we should do because we each should be doing something exactly love it thank you for sharing that where can people follow up and connect with you and get a copy of your book courageously alive a walk through military loss it is sold on amazon and you can get it in a paper version or on kindle and they could also connect with me through my author's page, which is Linda Ambard, or to my um, book page, which is Courageously Alive a Walk Through Military Loss. Okay, great. And Ambard is A-M-B-A-R-D for those who need to have the yeah. correct spelling. Linda, thank you so much for taking the time to share some of your story today to encourage and inspire others with your thoughts and just your ability to be vulnerable and, and share your personal life with us and to continue to have hope and faith that things can get better, that we can each go forward. And I really, really appreciate the opportunity I've talked with you today. Well, thank you for letting me talk. You're very welcome.